this morning, uh, I want to say I'm glad to be with you. For those of you who maybe who don't know me, my name's Phil. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm actually Jason's brother, the guy that you're used to seeing up here preach. We are brothers. For a lot of you, you're like, we know because of the, you know, thick, dark, luscious hair on your chins. Um, <laughs> but for many, you might not know that. Uh, but, you know, I, growing up, I, I, I didn't really love my name, Phil. Didn't love that name. I'm sure a lot of people kind of had that. Like, there, I feel like every kid at some point's like, I wish I was named something else, you know. I had that. I kind of thought Phil's were nerdy. It was like, you know, somebody who's destined to be an accountant or, you know, I'm just kidding. All the accountants in the room are like, what? You know, don't you dare besmirge my name like that. Um, yeah, I didn't love it. But then as I was growing up, I kind of realized, hey, there's some, there's some pretty cool Phil's. There's some pretty famous Phil's out there. Uh, if, I, if you're like me, I grew up in the 80s and 90s. I am a big NBA fan. So if you think about Phil... And the NBA in the 80s and 90s, you can't not think of Coach Phil, Phil Jackson. Phil Jackson is one of the most famous coaches in all of NBA history because he coached the Bulls and the Lakers through their greatest of eras. He coached Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen. He coached Shaq and Kobe. This is a dude who, he knew basketball and he did it really well. And if you were anything, uh, if you were paying attention to basketball at all uh, in the last 30 years, that's a name you got to know. But there's also another Phil that's fairly well-known, not Coach Phil, but Dr. Phil. (laughs) He's probably not quite as cool, um, but he's famous for things like, you can be right or you can be happy, you know? Um, He did pretty well for himself, maybe not the model of coolness, but nonetheless, you know, he did pretty well for himself. There's also, uh, you know, getting closer to my favorites, you got Uncle Phil, Uh, for those of you who grew up with the show Fresh Prince. This was the most loving and scary person that could ever be in your family. So that's Uncle Phil. And then, you know, in more recent time, you got the man, the myth, the legend, Phil Coulson. Uh, If you don't know, hey, all right. Wow. Wow. Phil Coulson just got a a round of applause. Uh, If you don't know Phil Coulson, he's of Marvel fame. He is actually the true hero of the first Avengers movie. Um, Anybody who disagrees with me, you're wrong. Um, But Phil Coulson, pretty awesome dude, RIP. So technically, there's a lot of cool Phils, not as many cool Phillips, and that's actually what my name is. Philip to me always sounded weird because it sounds like the sound of like a rubber ball hitting a wall. Philip, Philip, you know, like it it doesn't sound cool. And if you Google it, there are not as many cool Phillips. You got maybe an actor, a whole bunch of European kings. But according to Google, the most famous of Phillips is this guy named Philip King, whose primary claim to fame was that he was the guy from the Naval Services of England who went and charted out and mapped the Australian coastline. Apparently that was a really treacherous task to do because, you know, everything that can kill you is in Australia. So, so you go there, he, cha- chart, he charts out everything, maps how, you know, the coastline works, and they love him so much that they put his face on a stamp and they name six reptiles after him. I don't know how that's like a good, like, payoff, but 
all those things that are known as like king snakes and king lizards and all that kind of stuff, they're named after him uh, because they were all found in, in Australia, of course. Um, but not as many cool Phillips. And then if you look into Philip, there's almost, there's kind of this debate a little bit between Philip with one L and Philip with two L's. All of my friends right now are going, oh, this again. Because Philip with one L throughout faith history has had the meaning messenger, presumably of God. So Philip with one L, messenger of God, very cool. Philip with two L's solidifies the Greek meaning of the name, which is lover of horses. <laughs> Give you two seconds to guess which one my parents chose. <laughs> my parents chose two L's. So even though I'm a pastor who has a message to bring today, I will not be a messenger. I will be a lover of horses today. The reason why I'm talking so much about these names is because today we're going to jump back into our study of Acts and we're going to look at a guy named Philip. And we've been in the book of Acts for a long time now. And Acts has been covering a lot of what God has been doing through his people. And as we get to talk more about this Philip, who spells it with one L, uh, We're going to learn a lot today, but a quick recap of where we've been. Remember, Jesus gave the Great Commission uh, to the disciples to take the message everywhere, to teach them who Jesus is, what he's about, how to follow him. He gave that, that commission to all the followers of Jesus. And then at the beginning of Acts, he says, and you'll do this in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria because you'll have the power of the Holy Spirit. And so he tells them that right at the beginning, and then he heads back to heaven, and the disciples get to it. And as they're getting to it, man, the Holy Spirit comes, and the Holy Spirit starts showing himself in some really cool ways. And we have Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit comes and fills the disciples, and all the disciples are just talking about the goodness of God, but you got all these people from all these other places who are like, I can understand that. That's my language. How are they? Aren't these guys from around here? How are they speaking my language? So all these people are hearing the goodness of God specifically through the lens of Jesus in their own language and people start believing because they realize that's unique. That's something new and they're all in. So they start believing and people uh, believing in Jesus, the church starts to form and we see these beautiful pictures of community that happen where people are coming together and they're sharing life with each other and they're sacrificing for one another and they're building each other up and they're putting structures in place and things in place to make sure that people are cared for well. A couple weeks ago, we talked about establishing a deacon team and they did that on purpose to make sure that people weren't overlooked, but people were being cared for. That was stuff that was done by the church, not the government. And it was really cool to see the way the community was building and the church is forming And they are getting lots of opportunities to have to be bold with the gospel. They're bold with the gospel not just because they believe it and they share it, but they're bold with the gospel because they're getting a lot of opposition for it. From the authorities, from religious leaders, from just the people who are around who want to tell lies about them, they're getting lots of opposition. So they have to be bold with the gospel. And that boldness with the gospel comes to a head, as we've talked about the last two weeks, with a guy named Stephen. One of those deacons who's being bold with the gospel when he is being lied about and when he is having a direct attack against him, he's bold with the gospel and what ends up happening is they kill him for it. He's the first person who dies for his faith in Jesus. And that martyr 
opened up this door for the persecution of the church. And persecution starts spreading everywhere and they're throwing Christians in jail and they're killing them and they're chasing them down and they're hunting them. And when that happens, all these Christians, that beautiful community that has been forming there in Jerusalem, all those Christians start to realize Jerusalem is not a safe place for them. So they scatter. The Christians are sent into all these different areas, which sounds bad, right? But remember, what did Jesus tell them right at the beginning? You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. If they wouldn't have had that persecution, they would have all stayed there in Jerusalem together and chances are they would have just huddled and cuddled forever. But that persecution comes and it sends them out. And so here we are today jumping into the story of Philip who is actually one of the first guys helping carry the gospel outside of Jerusalem. And so we're going to be covering Acts chapter 8, verses 4 through 40. It's a lot of verses. It's a big passage. Normally, we would just kind of read the whole passage right now together, but instead, we're going to kind of break it up in sections as we go today because there's three or four kind of bigger stories within this passage. Each one of them could be a sermon of their own. But what we're going to do today is we're going to kind of just tell the story and explain the story, kind of like story time at the library. And we're going to do that, and then at the end, I'm just going to kind of say a little bit about here's some of what we as a church can take from this. And so our very first section that we get into is Philip and the Samaritan crowd. This is Acts chapter 8, verses 4 through 8. It says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And when they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. So a lot's happening with Philip right here in these few little verses. So let's talk a little bit about who is Philip. Philip is not the, if you, if, how many of you guys grew up in Sunday school? Oh, not that many. All right. Okay. All right. They were getting there. You were like, oh, is that rhetorical? It's not. None of my questions are rhetorical. You can answer them all. Uh, so if you grew up in Sunday school, maybe you sang the 12 disciples song. There were 12 disciples. Jesus called to help him. Anybody, anybody know that what I'm doing right there? All right, there's like four of you. So I won't finish the song. But that's how people like me actually know who the 12 disciples were because there was a song that made me memorize it. And there was a disciple, an apostle named Philip. This is not him. It's not that guy. What it is is from chapter 6 where we identified who these deacons were when they called these seven deacons together, and one of them was named Philip. This is that Philip. Philip is that deacon. He is a Hellenistic Jew, which Jason talked about a little while ago, but Hellenistic Jews were viewed differently than traditional Jews because back in the history of the Jews, they were taken captive and they were pulled out of Jerusalem and they were kind of spread into all these different lands and countries, and in doing so, the cultures of those countries started coming into them. So then, once they're set free and they come back to Jerusalem, well, now they got all this other cultural stuff in them. And the Hellenistic Jews speak Greek. And the traditional Jews don't like that. And they don't like some of the stuff they've brought back with them. So they see them as less than. Well, this is Philip. He's one of those less than guys. He's, you know, one of the impure Jews or the half-breed Jews. Um, 
But so not only was he looked at as less than because of that, but this Philip is also a follower of Jesus. Also not a super popular thing in Jerusalem at this time. So he's a Christian. He's a Hellenistic Jew. He's not the most loved guy. He's kind of more tolerated than anything. So when the persecution begins, Philip knows, hey, Jerusalem is not the safest place for a guy like me. So Philip heads out in the scattering. He heads out, and along the way, he finds himself in Samaria, which is interesting because if you know any of the history there, you know Samaria is not the most loved place by Jews either. There's been a lot of bad blood there for a long time. Lots of reasons factor into that, but basically the Jews viewed Samaritans like dogs. So here, there is this guy who is now going to Samaria, and you would think that would be uh, a very hostile environment for a guy like him. But again, Jesus told them, you'll carry my gospel to Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So Philip finds himself in Samaria. He probably didn't want this. He probably didn't sign up for that job. He's probably a little bit more like been forced out of his home like a refugee. And he just is where he is. But what we learn is that Philip uses that opportunity. And because he loved Jesus, because he took on the form of a servant, he lovingly brought them the message of Jesus. And apparently people listened. He was likely listened to even because of his less than status. Remember, if you're, if you're a less than Jew, you're a B-team Jew, and you're a Christian at this point, so you already know this guy is not in the good graces of Jerusalem. You show up at a place like Samaria, they're not going to listen to a standard Jew. They might listen to you, though. Because you've got, you got a little bit of that chip on your shoulder. You've got a little bit of that, you know, that same thing that I do. That same kind of uh, less than status that they look at me with, they look at you with. So he's listened to. And when they listen, man, some crazy stuff starts happening. People are healed and set free. God brings revival to a city simply because Philip was willing to just tell them about Jesus, where he was. The Spirit moved in powerful ways like we have seen many times throughout the book of Acts. But that's kind of the first section of the story. We move to the next section of the story and we learn about Philip and Simon the sorcerer. This is verses 9 through 13. There was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with their magic, with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus, they were baptized, both men and women, even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So who's this Simon guy? Well, Simon is apparently a famous magician or sorcerer type, depending on which translation you read. So he's somewhere, like he's either like a Harry Houdini or he's like a Doctor Strange. You know, we don't really know which. Maybe he's like sleight of hand tricks and everybody's like, ooh. Or maybe there's some kind of demonic influence there. Maybe there's like an occult thing that's been happening and he's actually doing some signs and wonders of his own that are shocking people. We don't know. We don't get the details on that. But all we know is that he called himself great 
And the people of Samaria gave him godlike status. See, if you look throughout history, this Simon, this Simon is actually credited as being the first Gnostic. The one he's called the father of Gnosticism. And now if you're like me, every time you hear the word Gnostic, you're like, let me go to Google real quick. What is that again? That's me every time. I've known this word for many, many, many years. Every time I'm like, which one are they again? And the Gnostics was this belief in a sense that every person had this part of God in them and there was this enlightened, higher message, this higher uh, you know, word that they had that they could impart because they themselves had a part of God in them. And in doing so, all these cults came about. And all of these, you know, basically because they're worshiping many deities. And so Gnosticism was this, this thing of a kind of, there's a God, but it's kind of us. And we can attain it. We can have it. Uh, we can do our thing with this higher, enlightened way of living. And what we find is Gnosticism actually was a big issue for the early church. It was something that Christianity was constantly pressing against in, this, in the early church. So Simon is the last person that you would expect to be listening to Philip. But for some reason, he does. His sorcery had been eclipsed by the miracles of Philip, and this passage gives us the idea that Simon actually came to some degree of belief as well, that he was baptized and that he was following Philip. He was amazed. And at this point in the passage is where it kind of takes a little bit of a detour. Simon's still there, but it jumps from Philip to some other guys. In verses 14 through 25, it says, Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to the many villages of the Samaritans. This passage of scripture kind of opens up a few questions of its own. First of all, the first question is kind of like, what's up with the apostles? Why are they involved now? Because we've been talking about Philip. What's up with the apostles? The understandable question, what's up with the Holy Spirit delay thing? And the last one, like, what's really going on with Simon? In these verses, those three questions are totally reasonable to ask. So first, why are the apostles involved here? Why is it jumping over to Peter and John now? Well, think about this. The word of God had been preached to the Samaritans, and they were receiving it and believing, and that word was spreading, and it spreads back to Jerusalem, where the apostles are. And the apostles hear that the Samaritans are believing in Jesus. The Samaritans. 
You know, like you have that friend from high school that if you heard right now that they love Jesus, you'd be like, what? Not that guy. You have that family member, that person that you're like, no, what? I got to see it for myself. That's a little bit of what's happening here. The Jews have seen the Samaritans as dogs, as unworthy of God. And now all of a sudden they're saying that they believe. Not only do they believe like God is actually working in them, this is real. So the apostles say, hey, we got to clean up on aisle three. We're going to need to send upper management to check this out. And Peter and John are sent to go on this recon mission to find out what's actually happening in Samaria. And they go and they see there's real believers here. But the Holy Spirit hasn't come to them yet like they experienced. So they pray for them. And in praying for them, they're like, let's see if this is real, right? And they pray for them. And the Holy Spirit comes and comes on all of these Samaritan people. And all of a sudden, Peter and John are like, whoa, yeah. Right on. The gospel is here. They do believe in this. This is legit. And the Holy Spirit works in them so the apostles are able to verify that not only has the gospel spread through Jerusalem, but it's coming to the Samaritans now. And it wasn't just Philip seeing this. It was the apostles. So the second question, what's up with this whole Holy Spirit delay thing? Well, verses 15 through 17 describe Peter and John praying for this group, laying hands on them, and then receiving the Holy Spirit. I don't remember that happening to me. What's happening? I've been taught, right, that the, the Holy Spirit comes when we put our faith in Jesus. What's happening with this? That's a reasonable question to ask. And I would say this is where we come back to the reminder that Jason has given us many times and that Rob gave us as well, that there's a difference between descriptive and prescriptive texts. Descriptive texts are describing something that happens. Prescriptive texts are saying this is the way it always has to happen. I think in this passage, what we're seeing is a description of what happened in a new place. Remember when the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, it's the first time that the Holy Spirit displays himself in that way. It's the first time that is displayed among the Jews. Well, here in Samaria, this is the first time that that is displayed among Gentiles. It's the first time that that is displayed among people outside of Jerusalem. And how, you know, this is maybe not necessarily setting a precedent because when we've talked about this in the two times already, so when it happens early in Acts and when it happens here, it's actually going to happen again in Acts 10. In those three examples, there's three examples where it happens like this with, this with this delay kind of thing. It doesn't happen the same way. It's not the same sequence of order. You know, it's not, doesn't involve all the same elements. This, this talks about the laying on of hands. That wasn't there in that first passage that we read like this. So clearly this is describing something unique. It's describing something special. So each time things like this happen, they're happening in different orders. They're happening in different ways. But what we do know is that every believer is receiving the promised Holy Spirit. I believe that the overwhelming evidence in Scripture points to the immediate dwelling of the Spirit upon salvation. And in these, in these specific cases, we have a unique, special thing that is happening for a purpose. It doesn't exactly tell us the why here in this passage. It could be because the apostles needed to be able to verify that they were truly believers and seeing the Holy Spirit work did that. It could be 
because the Samaritan believers needed to understand that they weren't second-class Christians like they were seen as second-class by the Jews. We don't know. But all we know is the Holy Spirit comes and he makes a very clear example that the gospel is for not just the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. So again, why, why is that happening? We don't know the exact why, but I would say it's for a specific reason. It's showing us a, a specific special thing. The third question, what's really going on with Simon here? Verses 18 through 24 tell us a bit more about the motive of Simon's belief. See, he tried to bribe them. And he tried to bribe them because what they were doing, he wanted to be able to do. Remember, this is the guy who was famous for his big signs and wonders, his big tricks. He kind of shows his cards here. And the reason why he shows his cards and shows us that he's not really a genuine believer is because if he was a genuine believer, when Peter and John laid hands on them, he would have received the Holy Spirit too. And he would know where the power was and where it came from. But he doesn't. He doesn't have that. He doesn't know that. What we know is that he wants the power of the Holy Spirit without the Holy Spirit. He wants to be able to bestow the Holy Spirit without actually having to receive the Holy Spirit himself. That's what we're kind of seeing, and he's showing his cards here with this. See, he's looking for his next big trick, his next big sign or miracle. And the apostles saw this, and Peter straight up calls him out for it. He told him, the gift of God can't be bought, and you need to repent of even thinking that. Peter's not one to mince words, as we have learned throughout the book of Acts. Peter specifically says in verse 22 that the intent of his heart is wicked. So Simon's intentions weren't to follow Jesus, but instead to take Jesus' glory for himself. And when Peter challenged Simon to repent, instead of, you're right, I do repent, I am wrong. Instead of that, he says, will you repent for me? Will you pray for me that none of those consequences happen? So maybe I'm being too harsh. Maybe there was a real repentance there in some way or another, and I'm just being too harsh. But I think what we see here is that he's actually just realizing he got caught and he doesn't want the consequences. And part of the reason why we believe this is because as you look through history, again, calling back to Simon, the father of Gnosticism, Simon continues to be a scourge against the early church. That's actually the word used to describe him, that Simon was a scourge against the early church. See, Simon's repentance didn't really come. And instead, that glory, that godness that he wanted to have for himself is where he lands. So after all this happens, the apostles see the gospel moving outside of Jerusalem. They start to head back towards Jerusalem and then preach the gospel in all the villages that they come across on their way back because they realize, hey, this is legit, Philip's this thing that happened with Philip in Samaria, this is a big deal. Like, let's do this too. They share the gospel and people believe and it's awesome. That's just on their way back. And this leads, us, this leads us to kind of the last section of this whole passage, which is Philip interacting with this Ethiopian guy, this Ethiopian official. And this is a long passage, so stick with me as I read it. This is 26 through 40. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, the queen of Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. 
He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this from Isaiah. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip and the eunuch, and, or carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So Philip has been up north in Samaria. God tells him to go south towards the desert, and he obeys. And on this road to the south, he meets this Ethiopian official, who's apparently some big kind of deal. But he's a Gentile, and he was going to Jerusalem to worship, which this would kind of classify him, I guess, as like a proselyte, which means he's kind of a con- he's not a convert, but he's definitely involved. Uh, so he's reading the prophet Isaiah, apparently loud enough <laughs> that Philip can hear it. So prompted by the Spirit, Philip runs up to him, asks him if he understands. The Ethiopian, this big deal, you know, official guy says, I don't get this at all. And Philip says, or actually he invites Philip to join him, and Philip willingly joins him, starts explaining what's going on. Philip uses the exact words that he was confused about to actually show him the goodness of Jesus. And apparently the Ethiopian believes because he's, after a while, is like, hey, let's do the baptism thing. Let's do that. And so Philip baptizes him right there along the south road. And then we get those few verses that are kind of crazy because, you know, right after this, it says the spirit carries Philip away to another town. That other town is like 20 miles away. So basically the Bible just told us about teleportation. Um, Beam me up, Scotty. Happened right there. I can't hang out on that point as much as I would love to because my little like superpower brain wants to know exactly how it looked and how would we put it in a movie. You know, that's what I want to know. But I like taking this story and if I like taking Bible stories, especially and kind of modernizing them to help me understand a little bit more. And I, I was thinking about this one and how weird this story kind of is, this interaction of Philip and the Ethiopian, because if you modernize the story and make it through the lens of the Ethiopian, this is a pretty bizarre story. Okay, so the Ethiopian guy is this like, he's, got a, he's a big wig, got a big job. He just took some personal time off to go do a religious thing. And on his way back, he's driving back to work and he's blaring his audio Bible through the stereo speakers. And he's got Isaiah on loop. And he's playing it so loud that this nice little hitchhiker on the side of the road is like running up next to his car and is like, what you listening to? And the guy's like, man, I have no clue but why don't you hop in my car and let's talk about it? And Philip does. And he gets in the car. And this nice little hitchhiker and this like Ethiopian bigwig dog 
there driving along, explaining, talking about all this, you know, uh, all the audio Bible that they're listening to. They're talking about all of it. And eventually, that guy's like, hey, we're driving past one of those neighborhoods where the guy's got the in-ground pool. Let's, uh, what would keep me from being baptized? And they jump out of the car and they jump into your backyard pool and he baptizes him right there. And then they come up out of the water and Philip's gone. That happy little hitchhiker just disappeared like highway to heaven style. And then all of a sudden, you know, here we have this Ethiopian who's like, well, that was crazy. Also kind of awesome. I should tell people about it. And that's kind of what happens. It's a weird story. It's an odd picture if you think about it through that lens. But, you know, that's kind of cool at the same time. So we take all those stories and we're like, hey, those are three different stories, four different stories. What do we take from all that? What are we supposed to catch from all of this? And I'm going to give you just three simple thoughts, and I really mean it. They are simple. These are not like Jason-level sermon points. These are very simple thoughts. But these simple thoughts are basically what we get from kind of taking all these stories into account together. First thing that we see, we see this through the Ethiopians' questions. We see this through the response of the Samaritans. We see Jesus is the answer for all people. Sounds so basic. Sounds so Sunday school. But if you were in this time, Jesus being the answer for all people is a totally revolutionary concept. Because up until this point, the Jews believed God was just for them. Even though he had been telling them he wasn't just for them, <laughs> they had believed it's just for them. Then even Jesus starts his church there in Jerusalem with these Jews. So even a lot of these Christians would not have believed that God and the message of Jesus was for anybody else. So right there in Samaria, we're seeing Jesus is the answer for all people. He's what everyone is looking for. The Ethiopians' questions were proving that. Everyone is made with a longing to understand what this is all about. Why does any of this matter? And just like Philip did with that Ethiopian man, we are pointed to Jesus. That's why any of this matters. That's what all of this is about. Jesus is it. Jesus is the hinge on which not only the Bible hangs, but it's the hinge on which all of human existence hangs. Jesus is it. The gospel is where we find our access point to actually know our purpose and to know why we're here and what we're all about. The good news of Jesus is it. And the good news of Jesus wasn't just for the Jews. It was for the Gentiles too. And for us today, it's important for us to know the good news of Jesus isn't just for Americans. It's for everyone else too. The good news of Jesus isn't just for the wealthy or the churchy or the Baptists. The good news of Jesus is for all people because all people are called to see a gracious Savior. So if you're here as a believer and you walk in today with the weight on your back and you're struggling, your greatest need is Jesus. Amen. Jesus is why you're, where you find your answer. You won't find it in doing all the better things and having all the better ideas. You will find your answer in closeness with Jesus. That's where you find it. If you're here and you don't know if you're a believer, you're not even sure, you're kind of searching and maybe you've got lots of doubts and you don't know about this whole Jesus thing, I'm here to tell you that that longing that you have inside of you to figure it out, that longing is pointing you at Jesus. It's pointing you to say, 
You were made for a relationship with God and sin broke that, but Jesus is how that is restored. That's what you're longing for. Every person is longing for that. If you don't have that relationship with God, my hope is that today might be a day where you can start that. We also see from this, through Simon especially, we see the power of God only comes through genuine connection with God. See, Simon had some amount of belief, but it wasn't genuine. The intentions of his heart were selfish, and he eventually showed that when he thought he could buy what he was longing for. So many of us are doing the same thing. We are trying to buy what we're longing for. Your wealth might give you comfort. Your stuff might give you influence, but they cannot give you the power of God that you are actually needing in your life. God certainly won't grant us his power just to use it for, his, use it for our own gain. So, We can't buy our way there, but we also can't manipulate our way into it either. See, we can't have the power without the relationship. That's what we're learning through Simon. This power of God only comes through genuine connection with God. See, I think we're here because we want to feel close to God, right? We we want the hands raised during the song, but we don't want to talk to the Lord in private. We want to have the wisdom and the understanding, but we don't want to dig into the word during the week. We want to have the influential word. We want to have that solid social media post, but we don't want the real relationship that any real power comes from. Real power only comes from genuine connection, from the, genuine connection with the Lord See, we want the fruit of repentance without actually repenting, and that's just the internet porn version of Christianity. It's wanting all of the fruit with none of the intimacy. It's wanting all the nice results without any of the work to actually build a connection. It's not real. It can't last. Powerful faith comes from true belief and true submission because of true relationship, and you cannot buy or manipulate your way into it. So Jesus is the answer for all people. The power only comes through genuine connection with him. And then last we see from Philip, we see that God does big things through normal people just doing little things. Now you might say, little things? That guy was doing miracles and there was healings and there was all kinds of stuff going on. And they were big. But how did those things come about? They came about because Philip was available. This less than B-team guy was used to bring the news of Jesus to whole new places. So you don't have to be the elite in order to be used by God. If you're waiting until you're more elite, if you're waiting until you have more knowledge, if you're waiting until you're better at being a Christian, if you're waiting for all these things to happen before you're willing to be used by God, you will wait forever. Because God's not looking for the A-team. He's not looking for the superstar. He's looking for the available and the willing. So start now. Start small and simple. See, even when Philip was displaced, instead of complaining, he talked about Jesus. Not in huge, amazing ways. He just talked about what had happened with him and what he saw and what he knew. You find yourself maybe in a place that you don't want to be, in a season of life that you didn't expect. 
You find yourself in a hard situation right now. Have you asked the question, how might God use me in this? What might God want to do through me? How might God use my, how might God comfort me in my affliction so that I can comfort someone else in theirs? How might God want to use that? If you're able to raise your attention above your current situation and struggle, you may actually see you've got a whole lot of opportunity in front of you. That's what we see from Philip. He just talked about Jesus and people believed and entire cities <laughs> experienced the joy that comes with Christ. He saw somebody with questions and he just sat down and talked with him. So when I do pastoral counseling, I say this phrase a lot and some of you who have done that with me, you could just say it right back with me. But I just say this phrase over and over and over all the time. Small consistent steps lead to big change over time. Small, consistent steps lead to big change over time. In Philip, we see God doing exactly that, doing these big things through just a normal guy doing little things. So band, you guys can go ahead and come on back up, and we're going to wrap up right now, but I just, we could have easily preached this in four different ways, but when it comes to this 10,000-foot view of this very large passage, we see the Holy Spirit's faithful to lead, and we're called to simply obey See, when we found our answer in Jesus, when he's produced genuine faith in us, then our simple acts of obedience can be used for things way bigger than us. Way bigger than us. And I hope you see that today. Lord Jesus, would you give us a bigger picture of how you might want to use us in whatever stage we are in, in whatever place we are in, and wherever we find ourselves. God, would you help us to see that we have been given this opportunity to be used by you not because of great knowledge or wisdom or not because of being you know, a super Christian or anything like that, but Lord, simply because we're yours. You allow us to carry your kingdom forward. So God, help us to see how you can do huge, amazing things through just normal people like us, just doing little things. Help us to see that. And I pray that we would follow you forward. We pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.